Well, good morning. How are you? We prayed for you this week. Love you and care about you. And so uh, we encourage you, if you would like to come out and pray with us, pray for one another. Thursday nights at 7, Sunday mornings at 9.15. We're seeing God do great things in our church. And uh, uh, if you'd like to know more about it, please ask me after the service. I'd be happy to let you know. Well, let's go come before the Lord, and then let's get into his word for this morning, shall we? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we come before you uh, as our loving, gracious King. Lord Jesus, you are our Christ, our Messiah, and you showed us by your example what kind of people you want us to be. And so, Lord, I know that anybody can put together a message, anybody can present a message, anybody can listen to a message. But, Father, above all, we ask today that we would hear your voice. Holy Spirit, Fall on us now so that we may hear the voice of our Savior, so we may learn of him, grow closer to him, and uh, grow as people who serve you and truly strive for greatness in this world. Lord, I ask that in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let me ask you, have you ever wanted to be great? Have you ever wanted to be truly great at something? We all have. I wanted to be great at a thing. When I got out of college, I went to Cal State Long Beach, got a degree in radio and television, and I said, God, I want to be great for you by serving you in Christian radio. Well, I got some, of the, some added phrases in there that kind of short-circuited what God really wanted to do in my life. He just wanted me to serve him. I was striving for greatness in what I could do for God and I was so worried about not being great that I remember the first time that I turned on the microphone to talk to the total of maybe 4,000 people who were listening on a Saturday night at 9 o'clock on a local Christian radio station. I was so nervous that my heart nearly left out of my, left out of my chest. I thought it's going to have a coronary embolism right there, pass out and die. But no, I ended up talking. And then after a few years and... Uh, some lessons learned. I learned about it's not about being great in the world's eyes, but it's about serving God and serving Him. And it's about the fact that, you know, we all want to achieve some kind of greatness in our lives. Um, and sometimes we look at trying to achieve greatness in the world's eyes, and we can get discouraged because we never achieve the greatness that we thought we should achieve in the world. We thought, uh, you know, I wasn't the best football player. I wasn't the best uh, whatever, fill in the blank right there. And some of us have given up. And uh, did, do you ever, let me ask you, do you ever feel like you had to ever give up on your uh, goal or plan of greatness in the world? Did you ever feel like you had to give up on that? Well, we all have. Well, what does it mean to be great? Well, great Truly great, according to Merriam-Webster, is to be large in size or remarkable in degree, magnitude, or effectiveness. Are you large? Are you living large? I try not to be large. I couldn't help it, but <laughs> we're working on that. We're working on that. I'm not great at losing weight, but, uh, but no, but we, we want to have some kind of impact in, in our world. 
And, you know, we all know that some things can be great in our world. Uh, they're great for a moment, but then they're not so great. Uh, you know, show me something great, people say, and I'll show you ten reasons why it's not so great. I mean, we seldom see greatness that's lasting. We get cynical about it. I mean, Jerry Seinfeld has a great bit that he does about greatness. It's a sunny afternoon. You're walking down the sidewalk. You've got an ice cream cone with your favorite ice cream on it. And suddenly the, uh, the ice cream falls off of it onto the floor, onto the sidewalk, on your shoes, all over your pants. And what do you say? Great. <laughs> this stinks. Well, then we wonder, is greatness truly possible? Well, our text this morning shows us that there is true greatness. There really is true greatness. Greatness still exists. And better than that, God invites every single one of us to greatness. So if you've ever felt like you've failed at greatness before in the world's eyes, we've got great news for you today. We're continuing our study in the fast-paced book of Mark. Mark was an associate of Peter, and we can reasonably, excuse me, understand, <coughs> pardon me, that Mark uh, is giving us uh, the Apostle Peter's eyewitness account of his time with Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. And uh, Mark is writing now for a Roman audience of Christians living under the rule of Rome and Emperor Nero. And of course, as we're studying along the Gospel of Mark, we're trying to answer three important questions. Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? And what is our response? Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? And how's our response? And as we look at Mark chapter 9, uh, verses 30 to 37, I would like us to see three things today. First, the nature of true greatness. Secondly, the false greatness of the world. And then thirdly, pursuing true greatness. Again, we'll see the nature of true greatness, the false greatness of the world, and then pursuing true greatness. Well, the nature of true greatness. Would you say that Jesus is truly great? Yeah, let's uh, look at Mark chapter 30, Mark, Mark chapter 9, verse 30. The beginning of our text today. And they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, in the first eight chapters of Mark, up until verse 28, we are being shown who Jesus is. We're being shown Jesus as the Christ. And then at Mark 8, 28 and 29, Jesus asked the apostles, well, who do you say I am? And Peter answers the $55.3 million question, and he says, you are the Christ. Boom, Yahtzee, they got it. Yes, Jesus is the Christ. And now... Uh, well, and it, the word Christ, in, in case you didn't know, but you probably do know, Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, which means the anointed one. 
And, uh, and of course, this was exciting for the apostles to finally know, realize that their friend and teacher has been doing all these miracles. Yes, ah, it all makes sense now. He's the Christ, yeah. The Old Testament teaches that God the Father would one day send his priestly king, the anointed one, who would rule and reign over all the world, bringing peace. This is the best thing ever. This is the greatest. The Messiah would point everyone to God as well. And so Jesus has proven that he's the Christ, hasn't he? As we've been studying along these last several weeks, he's done all the things that the Messiah would do. He's doing miracles, casting out demons, bringing people back from the dead, and town after town after town in Judea and the Decapolis. And God even God the Father even shows up at Jesus' baptism and at the Mountain of Transfiguration. We saw a couple weeks ago at the beginning of Mark chapter 9 where Jesus was transfigured. And God once again shows up and says, this is my son. Listen to him. This is the Christ. So great. Now we've established that Jesus is the Christ. But now Jesus in Mark chapters 8, 9, and 10 He's going to start teaching the disciples what kind of Messiah he is. Yes, he is the Messiah, but he's he's trying to teach them what kind of Messiah he is. And uh, Jesus shows us, and he teaches them, that even though he is the Messiah who is greatness, he's going to be giving himself up to serve mankind and welcome others in a way that no other person in history could. Jesus shows his greatness by being the ultimate servant. He humbled himself. Jesus want to make, we want to make this clear. Jesus humbled himself. Here is almighty God, Jesus Christ. First of all, he humbled himself by becoming human. That's a huge step down for God almighty. That is a humble servant. In Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, Paul describes Jesus' humbleness this way. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being, poured, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is true greatness, the ultimate greatness. And so in Mark 8, 9, and 10, (coughs) excuse me, Jesus teaches his disciples, again, what kind of Messiah he is. One who is, yes, the Messiah, but one, he must endure a cross before he wears the crown. He has to go low before he goes high. So in our text today, this is the second of three times that Jesus teaches his disciples what he must do before he is exalted because we need him to do this for us desperately. Secondly, he came to suffer and die on the cross to certainly to give himself up to die in our place, as I just said. Now, this concept of the suffering Messiah really hadn't entered into the apostles' thinking. 
but yet they'd been hearing about it all their life if they'd been going to temple and to synagogue. The suffering of the Messiah was foretold in Psalm 22. And you could also look at Isaiah 53. The whole chapter is about Jesus suffering from death, his suffering and death. But uh, I want to highlight just these three verses, uh, four verses. In Isaiah 53, if you want to turn there, you can, you can if you want to. Isaiah 53, verse 5, he says, but he, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Verse 7, he was op- oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before the shears is slain. So he opened not his mouth. And also he said, talking about his death in verse 9 of Isaiah 53, we read, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So the Old Testament said plenty about the fact that, yes, the Messiah is coming, but he's going to be a suffering Messiah. The disciples are just not getting it. But we want to realize that Jesus came to serve and to welcome all that trust in his name. First of all, I need to realize that Jesus served me because he died a death for me that I couldn't do. He paid the penalty and the price for all your sins and all my sins because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And in God's holiness and justice, it had to be a sacrifice of someone who never sinned and loved God perfectly his whole life, and someone who was willing to give it. This is an ultimate servant. Does Jesus check those boxes? Yes, he does. His act of love and sacrifice puts me in right standing with God when I believe in him, and there's no way I can achieve those things on my own. I needed Christ to serve me in that way. You and I need him to serve us in this way. We need to accept that service that he died for us and rose again. Jesus also said about this, about his role as a servant. Look at Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And what's a, what's a ransom? A ransom is a consideration paid or demanded for the release of someone or something from captivity. Mankind, all of mankind, was held captive to sin, death, and the control of Satan. Jesus served me, and he served you by paying our ransom. So Jesus served us by dying on the cross and rising from the dead, and Jesus not only serves, served, he also welcomes today. So how does Jesus welcome us? Well, it's what we get when we trust in the Lord as our Savior. We're not only given, we get, first of all, we get the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, comes to live in us. That's quite a welcome present, wouldn't you say? Almighty God comes to live in your heart. That's a welcome. That's a welcome. And that's just a down payment of the glory that waits for us in heaven and the new earth. God, the Holy Spirit, living inside you to give you life, power, peace, everything you need to serve the Lord and enjoy him. 
And what do we have to offer Jesus in return for this? Nothing. But that's okay. That's okay with Jesus. He came to welcome us, even though we had nothing to give back to him in return. Because even while I was still a sinner, Jesus died and rose from the grave for me. Jesus doesn't need me. Doesn't need me at all. I come to him with nothing. And again, that's all right with Jesus. So would you agree that Jesus and his action in our place on the cross are the greatest and the most wonderful service that anyone has ever done? Because he went to the ultimate low to free us from sin, death, and Satan so that we could be with him in the ultimate heights in his new heaven and new earth. Would you say that that is the nature of true greatness? Is that what's really great? And we celebrate that here every week. And we want to celebrate that with our lives. Now, how are we who follow Jesus supposed to live in the light of his sacrifice, his service, and his welcome to us? How are his disciples supposed to live in response to a Messiah that was going to go to Jerusalem to be first mistreated by men, suffer, die on a cross, and then raise from the dead? How are they supposed to respond to that? Well, problem is the disciples were still in the mindset of the false greatness of the world. Our second point. And All right, God bless you. The false greatness of the world. Mark chapter 9, verses 33 to 34. Let me read that for you. And, and then they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Let me ask you, does Jesus ask questions because he needs information? <laughs> he asks questions, right, to open us up and reveal what is truly in our hearts and what's on our hearts. And how did the, G how did the disciples so adeptly respond to Jesus' probing question? They were silent. <coughs> they realized that their understanding of greatness was all wrong. And what they wanted in their hearts actually was not actually great. Jesus exposed their desire for false greatness. You see, false greatness flips what they had been learning from Jesus about the true nature of greatness. You see, the disciples, they, wa they wanted to be first. These 12 were good Jewish boys who had been taught from, from their youth, from the religious leaders about the promised Messiah and what the promised Messiah would do. He would rule the world from Jerusalem at a, in a time of peace. Everyone would know the God of Israel. And, and even after uh, 70 A.D., uh, Jews to this day say that, well, in addition, the Messiah will do those two things, but also rebuild the temple, and they're still waiting for that. But at that time, 
uh, the, the disciples were just knowing that, hey, here we are. We are best friends with the Messiah, the one that everybody's been waiting for, and we're in his inner circle. Yes, we've got it. We've got it made in the shade. It's limousines and Lagostino from here on out, baby. And also, they had a problem, too, about false greatness because Jewish culture was all about status, wasn't it? At feasts or in the synagogues, there was a certain pecking order in Jewish culture, right? There was the high priests, then the scribes, uh, Pharisees, the rich folks, and then the less than rich folks. And so, um, you know, it's, it's like, um, you know, nearest we can relate to that, I guess it's like our modern military. Um, you know, the, you know, guys know the, the 80s know the, 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 uh, the order in the U.S. military. It goes President of the United States, Secretary of Defense, Joint Chiefs of Staff, Generals, Colonels, Majors on down, things like that. And so the disciples thought that they were going to have the highest status in the world next to Jesus. And so what did they do on their walk back to Capernaum? Well, they said, okay, who's going to be the greatest? Well, and we can, <laughs> we can suppose all kinds of fun, fun in that congregation, or that conversation, excuse me. But what they were still, they're having the problem that they were still thinking about false greatness. It promises a lot, but it delivers nothing of lasting nature. According to the world, I'm great when people serve me. That's what the disciples were thinking. The disciples were also thinking true greatness, well, that's achieved through, yeah, serving people, but then to get what you ultimately want. Prestige, power, position, money, status. And a third way of serving that a lot of the people in that day knew a lot about was serving out of fear or imposed servitude. When the world says if you have lots of people answering to you, like the higher you go in the corporate world, or if you have independent, you're independently wealthy, you can pay lots of people to make your life easier. <coughs> Excuse me, that's greatness <clears throat> in the world's eyes. You know, at one point I kind of bought into the idea that, you know, if I had got an MBA, I could move up in the business world because I had this degree. More influence, you know, more say-so in how things are done. And uh, I was told that, that idea, and I bought into the idea, and I went out and got an MBA. And today, where am I in the uh, heights of uh, cor corporate culture? Nowhere. <laughs> that didn't pan out. That wasn't so great. You know, even at Christian colleges, they teach about servant leadership. Well, servant leadership is great. If you go at it selfishly, though, like if you serve people so that you can get what you want, advancement, power, money, you will be serving, but you're serving with fake humility. And so you can get the organization moving in the way you want, but, <clears throat> but if people know you're there serving and faking the humility and faking your service, do they appreciate that? Do you appreciate that? When you see that when somebody's being fake and humbled and trying to just get stuff from you to serve their, their, their plans? No, that's not being a servant leader. That's manipulative. And that's also called being a people pleaser. And I know I'm, I'm guilty of being a people pleaser. Um, go, doing things for people, serving people in hopes that they will like and accept me. And if I serve 
at people and do all kinds of things for them, uh, then hopefully they would like me. And if they didn't like me, go, oh, well, that was a wasted effort. Was I giving them true service then? No, not according to what God wants. That's not God's way of doing it. True service is loving others and lifting them up. True service is being humbly willing to serve from a position of power to make other people shine. You don't care about shining yourself. You just want to love them and see them shine. Finally, in this little scenario about um, the uh, nature of false greatness, um, serving out of fear or, or imposed servitude. You know, that's like the guys on the Death Star. All those British dudes walk around saying, yes, Lord Vader, yes, sir, Lord Vader. We'll double our efforts, Lord Vader, because they don't want to get that force um, death choke grippy thing that he does, right? <laughs> and so <laughs> they don't want that. So, hey, Lord Vader, whatever you want, okay, I just don't want to die. Don't kill me. And no one wants to serve under that way. Um, you know, it's uh, a lot of times for us, it's like we serve because, well, we want a paycheck. And no paycheck, no life. And so that's how we get people when we'll show up to restaurants that serve us like by saying, oh, welcome to our restaurant. Thank you for being here. It's a pleasure to serve you. Have a nice day. That's not service out of joy or wanting to make me shine or have a great time. But that's it's service out of uh, servitude with a purpose. But that's not the kind of self-giving, sacrificial service that Christ is calling his followers to. It's a service, again, that lifts others up to help others shine. That's humility. And humility is not some form of cowering, cowardly uh, service, you know, uh, to the world. They misinterpret humility by putting others first um, before yourself. It's just being wimpy, and that's it. Well, Jesus put all of us first. Would you call Jesus a wimp who had ultimate power, ultimate strength, God Almighty? Would you want to walk up to him and say, you're so wimpy, Jesus? No, not in the least, no. But yet he served us. He went low to serve us in the, in the most essential way that we needed to be served so that we could join him on high, to go high. You see, um, in this whole talk about being humble in Roman culture, humility was not even seen as a virtue. The fact that we even talk about humility today in all the world cultures is a testament to Christianity's impact. So the disciples were absolutely silent as they realized they have not fully grasped the idea of living a cruciformed life that puts their worldly aspirations to death to adopt Christ's aspirations for them as his people. And now they need to see how to achieve true greatness according to the way God wants them to be great. Remember, God wants you. He wants me. He wants each one of us to be ambitious for greatness. And he's offering it to us today. So right now, if you failed at any attempt in life to be greatness in the world, don't worry about it anymore. Today starts your new trek towards greatness in the kingdom of God. And Jesus uses this opportunity to teach his disciples and us about pursuing greatness. Pursuing greatness. This is our third point, pursuing 
true greatness. So he sat down and he called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Who does that remind you of? And he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Pursuing true greatness in the Christian life as a matter of firstly, trusting in the gospel. Do you trust the gospel? You must be served by Jesus. Do you accept his service for you? Do you believe that he lived the perfect life on your behalf? That he was God's perfect lamb of sacrifice and died in your place on the cross, paying for your sins and earning your righteousness before God? What is your response to Jesus' service to you? Well, let's turn from the world's false ideas of greatness and the world's false ideas. Let's turn to God. That means living no longer for yourself and believing in and having your agenda, but now you live for and you follow Jesus Christ. And secondly... In the power of his serving you, you in turn serve like he did. All right. And so what does this mean about uh, uh, serving Christ? Secondly, in the power of his serving you, that's right. Now, what does doing this in Jesus' name mean? Well, the phrase in Jesus' name is associated with uh, the authority of Jesus imparted to a person where that person performs an action as if it were at Jesus actually doing it. Now, giving yourself up. True love is doing the most good for people, for another person, no matter the cost to yourself, without the need or desire of receiving anything in return. You give yourself up. That's what Jesus did for us on the cross. He gave himself up for us. And then what do you do? You serve and welcome others. Let me ask you, what defines you as a Christian? How would the world, how would people see you and know that you are a follower of Jesus Christ? Let me ask you another question. What does the world need to see in your life that shows that you have given yourself up for Christ? It's how you and I serve one another. It's how we love one another. You know, and there are thousands of ways to do that. And that's why we have these great announcements and saying, hey, if you'd like to come and volunteer at Fountain of Life, hey, here's a great way to serve. And so it's how we welcome one another at church. It's how we welcome one another at home, in our business, out in our community. Do we welcome one another in Jesus' name to our lives. Not in a consuming way, but in a way that says, me as an emissary of Christ want to welcome you to the kingdom of Christ and all the love and blessings of Jesus. Am I welcoming you? And look how Jesus received and welcomed this child. Now, it's interesting that he, he brought in a child. In that day, in the Roman Greco culture, children were... They're not um, 
serve the way we serve them today. <laughs> you know, you know, parents, um, who dominates your schedule <laughs> throughout the day? Who dominates? It's the kids, right? And uh, because we want to love them, bless them, help them grow, keep them healthy, and all that kind of thing. We want to love and serve our kids. Well, in that day, in the Roman Greco culture, children were of no value. They were, um, uh, you know, they had no position. They had nothing to offer. Uh, we can go into just how horribly children were treated in that time. And so with Jesus taking a small child and embracing them to illustrate this point, he let them know that this person was who was of no value, who could do nothing for Jesus in return, yet Jesus took this child in his arms and embraced him and welcomed him in their midst, showing the disciples that to the God of the universe, this little child is worthy of love, service, and welcome. And we need to have that heart for others. Um, I am so thankful that when I became a Christian, I was welcomed by a great group of friends. Um, a guy named Harry, a guy named John, his sister Mary. They had a great um, Bible teacher that was their, their uh, high, high school uh, youth pastor. And I was welcomed into that group, uh, welcomed into a Friday night Bible study. And because I was welcomed in Jesus' name by these folks, I was able to thrive and grow and learn and knew that I was in the kingdom of God because they loved and welcomed me and they shared life and God's word with me. And it's awesome. So that eventually Mary and I welcomed each other in a wonderful way. We got married and then we were able to welcome kids into our life. And now we have three of our own kids and the family just grows and grows and grows and the welcome continues. And I love how this church welcomes people as well. This is, we want Fountain of Life to be continue to be a place of welcome in Jesus' name. So for anyone who is seeking Christ, wants to know more about him, we want to welcome you and let you know that you're loved, you're safe. This is a place where you can grow in your relationship with Christ and we want to be your family and, and serve you in that way. And uh, so ultimately we discover that the Christian life is one of service and of welcome. And uh, to touch back on something I opened up with about being uh, on the radio and having my heart leap out of my chest because I was so nervous about being less than great. Well, now, over the course of several years, um, I learned that my Christian, I couldn't achieve greatness <coughs> through radio. And that kind of fell apart and kind of went away. And then I committed to knowing God and serving Him in any way that He wanted to. See, before I'd said... Hey, Lord, I want to serve you in Christian radio. Well, God wanted me to say, hey, Lord, I want to save you. Stop. Stop right there, Phil. Just do that part. Let me take care of the rest. And so for a lot of years, I was not in Christian radio. But during that time, uh, through his grace and his mercy and his patience with me, I learned about what we're talking about today, loving people, not caring about what you get in return, Go ahead and love God, serve others, love others, welcome others, and let God take care of um, the rest. So today now, I, by God's mercy and grace, I get to be back on the radio again. And now, where before when I would crack the microphone 
and I'd be all nervous because I was going to say, oh, where am I going to be on the greatness level? Where am I going to be on the greatness scale? According to the world, am I going to be funny? Am I going to be whatever? Now my heart is I love God and I want to serve the people that I'm talking to. I don't care what they say back to me. I don't care, but I do want them to know the gospel. I want them to know the love of Jesus Christ. And I want them to just be, I want them to shine in Christ. So now the nervousness goes away when it's time to serve. You just go ahead and serve. Because that's what I'm there to do is to let other people shine. So um, if anyone claims the name of Jesus, remember that person is an emissary. Back to what uh, the Lord was saying about receiving people in his name. Uh, when you and I welcome others, when you and I um, look at one another and say, well, really, I don't want anything out of you. I don't need anything back from you, but I just want to love you and serve you in Jesus' name. When we serve one another in that way we, and just work to help everybody grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, so that when we see each other and welcome each other at church or wherever we are, hey, brother, sister, family member, member of Christ's family, you're welcome and you're loved. Because wherever we go, whoever we receive and when we act ourselves, we are emissaries of Christ. We are ambassadors for Christ when we welcome one another. Just remember in Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, it says, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, and we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And of course, we want to recon help reconcile everyone in the world to Jesus Christ, and we want to love them and serve them and welcome them in Jesus' name. And imagine that by a community that welcomes everyone else as an emissary. Um, not only are we welcoming God the Son in that moment, we're also be welcoming God the Father. And you're doing it as if Jesus himself was actually doing it. And wouldn't you say that's the nature of true greatness? I hope so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time to be together. Thank you for our family here who came in to uh, worship you, serve you, and love you. Lord, I pray that... Um, for those who need to let your son, Jesus Christ, serve them today, Lord, I pray that you'd help them to turn from their sins and trust in Jesus Christ and serve them and see how you serve them by dying on the cross in their place and rising from the dead and giving to them total forgiveness of sins and his righteousness. Lord, thank you for welcoming each one of us into life everlasting. Thank you for giving us the person of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for welcoming us as adopted children, inheritors of your eternal kingdom. Lord Jesus, I pray that uh, you now help us to serve and receive the people you place in front of us, that we may receive you and the Father and experience the joy, the love of fellowship, and the fellowship with you. Lord, I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ for your glory and for the blessing of our brothers and sisters in Christ. In Jesus' name, I pray.